You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. In today's episode, I talk with Seth Sternberg, who's the co-founder and CEO of Honor, which is a home care company. They operate the Honor Care Network, a pioneering national network of home care agencies. Prior to Honor, Seth was the co-founder and CEO of Mebo, which brought instant messaging to the web and reached close to half the internet population in the US. Mebo was acquired by Google, where Seth became product director working on the Google identity platform and then within Google X. Seth started his career with IBM's corporate development group after graduating from Yale. In his free time, he enjoys cycling, working with entrepreneurs and spending time with his wife, Monica, and his two children. Seth and I originally met in college. And so it's been exciting for me to see his evolution as an entrepreneur. He had a business back in college that I remember and so excited to see his success at Mebo. I invested personally in honor at the beginning, inspired by the mission, and wonderful to see how far they've come. In this episode, I discuss with Seth what caused him to want to be an entrepreneur, what it takes to build a team, how to pick an idea. We get into how COVID has affected honor, how the mission has helped them hire great people, how investors think about the company. We have some other great conversations so please stay tuned. Seth, welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks for coming on. Totally. Thanks for having me, Miles. Yeah, it's uh, wonderful to have you. I'm so excited to chat about your experience as an entrepreneur and really dive into the story of honor and how things have changed over the years. Um, maybe we could start with how do you decide to be an entrepreneur? I decided to be an entrepreneur basically because I don't think I could hold down a normal job. I mean, I, I literally was scared of when you and I were in college together. <laughs> I was scared of the notion of having a normal job where you would be sat behind a desk and, you know, have to do stuff that other people told you to do. So I think that was one part. Um, and that almost led me to my first company, you know, working in my first company, which was you know, fun for a, you know, me in my early twenties, but not like change the world for the better. And then when you got to like me in my mid thirties, it was, well, I still really, really want to be an entrepreneur. I want to create stuff. And I was addicted to creating stuff, but it had to have the ingredient of change the world for the better. Otherwise the, like, it was too hard. And so, you know, these days it's like, you get to work on really fun problems that are really hard, but really meaningful. And when you say otherwise it's too hard, you mean it's a lot of work, so it might as well be for a good cause? Yeah, you know, startups are almost no startup looks like YouTube or Facebook, right? Like up and to the right all the time. Um, and even YouTube and Facebook, you know, if you knew those guys early on, like it was really hard for them too. So startups are really, really hard and they are not, they're almost always not the right risk reward trade-off if your goal is just like, don't work that hard don't kill yourself um but make you know a decent salary or whatnot um 
so you do like startups are just like really hard. And when I got to doing my second one, uh, I just knew like the thing that would keep me going through all the hard times was if I was working on a super big kind of meaningful world problem. And that would make it worth it. Like who cares about the risk reward trade-off? Who cares about the salary or the ultimate outcome? Like, let's just try to solve that world problem. And that's meaningful. And that'll keep, you know, the, me and the founders and ultimately the team going. Yeah. So the mission really got you motivated. Before we dive into your second startup, I'd love to start with your first. Tell us about how you got involved and what you guys did. Yeah. So I, um, the first one was called Mebo and it was a web, it started as a web messenger. It was like, let's make it possible for people to live chat through a browser instead of software, which back in the day was novel. Today it's not, we do it all, all the time. But, you know, back in uh, 2005, you needed to download and install software to do live chat on the internet. Um, and the way that came to be was you know, I was in business school and I saw business school as you've got two years to start a company or you failed. So my friends and I were meeting every Wednesday night and every Sunday all day and just brainstorming ideas and working up prototypes of different ideas. And we finally launched <clears throat> our idea like right at the end of my summer in between my first and second year. And that took off really fast. And I ended up dropping out of B-School a few weeks into the second year and, and working on Mebo. How did you decide who to work with? Uh, you know, it's, it's really hard. And you hear all these stories about founding teams that don't get along and founding teams that break up. Um, so I took the route of if I had super trusted friends who told me that I could trust other people because they knew them that that seemed like the right path. So from a kind of personality perspective and knowing you can work together, et cetera, um, I went with, if my friends vouch for them, then that's good. And obviously, you know, we spent a ton of time together just when we were initially brainstorming. And then the other thing you just have to think about beyond personalities is what's the skills match or the skills profile. So like, so often you'll get, you know, three MBAs and they want to do this really great consumer internet. And, you know, they'll pitch me and say, hey, we want to do this great consumer internet company like video something or other. And I'll say, okay, but I have a question. They'll say, what is it? And I'll say, well, you're an MBA, you're an MBA, and you're an MBA. So like, who's going to build the product? And they'll like look at each other and they'll say, I'll get an undergrad to do it. And it's like, okay, you're screwed, right? Like that, that doesn't work. And so uh, you need to find people with complementary skills. So if you're like a businessy person, you know, find a product person, find an engineer. If you're an engineer, find a product person and a businessy person. Like you kind of need to make sure you have the right basic skills covered to get going. And so you had team first, is that what you're saying? We had, oh yeah, we had team first. So we went team first and then into, you know, kind of ideation on the, on the first idea and, and the second idea and honor. Yeah. So did you have a commitment that you wanted to start something together or this loose sense that it would be nice to work together? Uh, you know, we, we all wanted to build something. And um, in the first one, you know, we were really at a different stage in our lives than where we were when we did our second one. But we wanted to build something that would be fun for us to use, right? And useful for us. And we all used Instant Messenger a ton. And that's how we came up with, well, like we'd really like to be able to use instant messenger everywhere. Let's do it on the web. Um, so, but it was like, you know, we were literally spending, you know, a day and a half a week together over the course of a year brainstorming. So we all like wanted to do something. We had the right 
DNA in the team. Like there was a product person and slash designer, there was a hardcore engineer, and there was you know me, the kind of businessy person who was producty. Um, I mean, I was I was probably the least valuable person, like by a mile, <laughs> uh, on that one at least. And then you know, second time around, it was the same deals. It was actually just getting together with one of those two co-founders from Mebo, and then another two people. And, uh, you know, again, it was like the four of us just brainstorming ideas and we knew kind of the sketch of what we wanted to do. And we knew we wanted to do something together and honing in on what that idea would be and ultimately building and launching. Yeah. Part of the reason that I wanted to spend some time on the team was this notion that you carried forward and had the same co-founder for your second business. But before we get there, a little bit more Amiibo, how, how did it turn out? Yeah, so uh, 6.8 years in, which is really close to the average duration to liquidity, we sold Mebo to Google. And so the team went over there and I was a product director there for a little while before bouncing out and doing Honor. So it uh, turned out well. Great. And so when you were ready to do it second time round, uh, you knew you wanted to work with your co-founder again. It sounds like you also decided you want to do something mission-driven. Yep. What were the other things on your mind? Yeah, so we had um, basically three rules. It was look a human in the eye and know you're going to make it their life fundamentally better. Be able to believe that it could be what we call the $100 billion company market cap, which means not just one person, but millions of people in the eye and make their lives better. So it was a, it was a measure of the amount of impact that we wanted to have. And then the final one was kind of interesting because we were doing it when Y Combinator was just like exploding and everyone was talking about it. And we kind of said, well, what's our advantage versus everybody who's doing Y Combinator? And what we said is, well, you've, you've kind of got to put startups on two ends of a spectrum. One end of the spectrum is it's got a lot of market risk. Like I can build the thing. It's actually not, not that hard to build V1, but I have no idea if people want it. And then on the other end of the spectrum is you know, this thing is like freaking really hard to build, but obviously people would want it. And we basically decided that multi-time entrepreneurs, which at that point we were, had an unfair advantage on the really hard to build, but you definitely know people want it because, you know, you know how to hire teams, you know how to raise money, you know how to solve hard, solve hard problems, um, but you don't want to take risk on is there demand. Whereas, you know, I think when you're in your early 20s, you know, you know, early 30s, whatever it is, you don't have a family, you don't have a mortgage, like you have many less responsibilities in life. You can just like stay up until 2 a.m. all night, iterate, like, you know, hack stuff up, throw it out there. It's kind of like throw spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks. And like, that's your unnatural advantage, right? You don't have kids that you need to, you know, feed <laughs> uh, at dinner time. And so I think those are really great for when you've got that kind of time. And I think the hard execution ones are really great for when you really know how to build a company. And so think, that was the last one. I also think that younger people sometimes are living in the future and can see an early market developing before it, others can. Yeah, and, and certainly ones that affect their lives and their cohort. I mean, like if you look at what we built in our first company, it was totally a demand risk one, right? It was like, do people really want this? And it was about, you know, kids who were our age or slightly younger. 
and that's who is using it. And now, you know, we built our second company, we built something where I'm, you know, I'm right in the target demo to slightly older folks than I am. You know, usually it's a 40 to 60 year old person who's buying care for their, you know, 75 to a hundred some odd year old, you know, mom or dad. So you, we tend to build, you know, what we need. And I think you might be right. I think, you know, what, what the older people need might be more defined, whereas what the younger folks want may not yet be built. I think you also said something interesting, which is using what others could perceive as a weakness as a strength. And Paul Graham talks about that in one of his essays about when you start a company when you're younger, even out of school, your ignorance, your naivete, your lack of, uh, you know, burn rate and commitments, personal expenses, all these things actually can be used as a strength. You don't know how hard it'll be. So you, you go at it or you don't know what is supposedly the way to do it. So I think sometimes it's really a matter of looking at your situation and understanding how you can leverage your supposed weaknesses. Oh, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, like, and I think you, almost in all cases, you want to take advantage of that in some way. You know, I think when people do their first startup, they have no idea how hard it's going to be. <laughs> so even that is, you know, I don't know until I, until I know. You know, if you look at Honor, which is doing elder care, we had no idea how hard it was to do elder care. We didn't know much about elder care. We didn't fully understand, you know, why was it that no one ever scaled an elder care company before until we got into it and did it and found out all the things we didn't know, right? So not knowing lets you dive in and make some mistakes, but like, you know, find some avenues that, you know, people with lots of experience might have closed off in their minds, but might actually be possible. So tell us more about Honor. What was the original vision? And then we'll get into how it changed. Yeah, so the original vision was, it was pretty simple. We wanted to just do care for parents. So we we realized because of an issue I had with my mother that our industry, like the technology industry had not done much around the elderly and that the elderly population was exploding as a percentage of population. And then that's way too broad for a startup, right? You have to focus. So we focused down on let's help people stay in their homes as they age. And then we looked at all sorts of potential solutions and settled on this space called non-medical home care, which is where a, a person goes into the home of an elderly person and helps them with really basic things called activities of daily living. So things like getting out of bed or getting food or getting dressed, like literally helps them live their lives. And if someone weren't there to help them, they, they couldn't be at home. And we settled on non-medical home care basically because we saw it as really large market that was pretty well, pretty broken and very fragmented, like super, super fragmented as a marketplace, which creates like not great experiences for the customers and for the care professionals, for the people who are the paid caregivers who go in and help the elderly. And so we thought we could really like make people's lives better if we were able to bring scale, um, which we perceived we could only do through technology. So we launched that way. We didn't, we knew you know, $30 billion market had never scaled, hyper-fragmented. We thought going in that it was mostly around the logistics and operations that kept it from being able to scale. That turned out to be mostly true, but we had to do a lot of experimenting along the way as well on how do you aggregate up demand in this market. And, you know, if you fast forward to today, it's, we still do non-medical home care. We've, we've done a lot of iterating on the right way to go to market, like how to amass users quickly and grow at venture speed. But uh, the core service has basically not changed since day one. 
And how much of tech is woven in with that customer experience? Yeah, so it's interesting. The, your average honor customer would probably say almost none, which is intentional. So we do not want an 85-year-old with dementia to need to use technology in order to use honor. And we would prefer that their 40 to 60-year-old kids used our apps to like do scheduling and such, um, but they don't have to. They can call us. Where Honor's technology is super important is in solving all of the problems around logistics and operations that had previously made it impossible to scale non-medical home care. So it's stuff like running machine learning against why is it that care pros on the surface seem to call off, which is to say, randomly not show up to a visit up to 11 or 12% of the time. Or, you know, when should I issue a bonus if I have to cover a last minute shift where a care, you know, where a call off occurred? Should I do it 50 hours before or 10 hours before? How much should it be? It's about what is a good care pro? You know, you can't, you can't just say to a customer, hey, is your, is, did you like your care pro if your customer has late stage dementia, right? So like that, you know, a five, one to five star rating from that particular customer is probably not particularly meaningful so you find yourself having to turn to ML, literally just figure out at scale who are the really great care pros and the, and the not great care pros. And then what you find, because it's a human service, is you know everybody's definition of good is really different and there is no static algorithm against who's a good and bad care pro. It's more about who's a good and bad care pro for you and your mom. And so it turns out that home care is so human right? It's literally humans caring for humans that it cannot be scaled except for being able to build like really flexible algorithmic approaches to what's good and what's bad. And how do I give you the care pro better work that you'll like more that fits your life better so that you will perform better. We call it care for care pros. And then ultimately then giving better service to our elderly customers and their kids. And that's where our technology is super critical. Like we literally couldn't build on her without like super deep machine learning. Which is the current version of AI that everyone's talking about. Yeah. I, I actually explained this a lot because, you know, we, we interface with the, with the home care world a lot where there's not yet a lot of technology and, I often, you know, talk talk to people about like, look at the base at a basic level. When you hear people talk about ML, machine learning, ML, AI, big data, it's kind of all the same thing. <laughs> so, uh, and and basically, what it is is let's look at patterns from the past to predict the future. And if and if you get that, then you're good. And you know, we could talk about it. Don't just listen. Get engaged. I host a giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. Why do they need support and why is it hard? Well, think about all of the challenges of a nonprofit startup where only 2% ever make it to more than 10 million in annual budget and all of the challenges of a tech company in building a team, understanding users, figuring out what to build and architecting the right product. So why does it matter? Well, think of the established large tech nonprofits that impact your life. Mozilla makes Firefox and other important internet infrastructure. Wikipedia collects and distributes knowledge. Code for America makes our government work better. Code.org and Khan Academy teaches us all. In healthcare, Medic Mobile powers living goods and other local community healthcare workers. So 
go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle to find out more. So give us a snapshot of Honor by the Numbers today. Uh, Sure. So it's a little over 300 people in HQ. Um, HQ is a funny definition now because everybody works from home. That's a crazy story. We had to disband in like three hours because we got a someone who had a, a sister visit her who called her a few days later and said, hey, just tested positive for COVID. It's like, oh no. Um, so very quickly we went from being office-based to not office-based. Uh, we cover six states, um, most of California, some of Texas, most of Arizona, most of New Mexico, um, Detroit, um, Cleveland. Uh, we have over 40 partners, so we help uh, home care agencies um, run their entire businesses end to end. So they they can literally sell for Honor and run care management and Honor will um, uh, kind of run all of the home care for them, if that makes sense. So that's, you know, that's our rough scale. You've raised a number of rounds of venture capital. Are you able to talk about that? Yeah. So we've raised, uh, we just we just closed on and announced a $140 million round I think over the life of the company, we've raised, if I remember right, it's about 225, 225 million. The most recent round is, it's great. It's, you know, it's kind of double the money, so to speak. It's, you know, it, it, I said to the team, in a week, we've raised as much money as we've raised over the last six years. So man, we better change the world real, <laughs> in a really meaningful way with this money that just came in. And it'll just let us, you know, grow to more places and really product differentiate in a way that'll start to, I think, really change how people even think about non-medical home care and start to push it more over to care for mom and dad, which I'm super excited about. And the new investors in this round are, you know, there are a number of new investors, but two of the the two who led it or co-led it are T. Rowe Price and then Bailey Gifford, who's kind of, I think of them as similar to T. Rowe Price, a mutual, big mutual fund operator, but out of Scotland. And they're great because they're super long-term investors who are super long-term focused and can support the company as it as it continues to grow and mature. And that long-term orientation, is that the same thing as buying into your mission for care? Or do you see them more as financial investors? Yeah, it's a really good question. So at the end of the day, all financial all investors are financial investors, right? Like they're they're only going to invest because they they're investing other people's money. And their job is to provide a return to those people or they have failed, right? And it's bad for those people if they don't provide a return. So they're not going to invest if they don't believe that there's a solid business case. That said, one of the ways that they clearly think about what to invest in is, you know, is this a really large market? Is this a growing market? You know, does the world care, right? Because does the world care is a proxy for, is it gonna remain large? Is it gonna keep growing even if there's say a global pandemic and you know stock market crashes 30%. So, you know, they both, T. Rowe and Bailey Gifford, both like really had strong theses around elder care, you know, the population of the elderly folks exploding, needing to, you know, create more goods and services that really help the elderly and their caregivers. But they also, you know, they they use that as a lens to find really great investment opportunities and ultimately returns. Do you feel like you have to speak differently to employers versus investors about the company? Uh, employers versus uh, yes, <laughs> honestly yes. You know, it's when you're when you're talking to investors, it's it's something that I wish I wish the answer were no. It took it took me a long time 
to realize that the answer was truly yes. And it's because when you're talking to investors, first and foremost, they truly do come at it from a business standpoint of, is this thing going to be massive, right? Is this thing going to provide a return to my investors, which are called LPs or limited partners? When you're talking to employees, especially at a super mission-driven company like Honor, they care, you know, they care about the value of their equity, right? Like an employee at any at any startup or you know growth company. But they really also care about the mission and the and the you know care pros who are employees and the customers, right? They really, really care and honor deeply. And so it's it's definitely a different, you know, framing when you're talking to one group versus the other. How has being mission-driven helped you perform better as a business? Yeah. Um, so by far, it lets us hire better people than we should be able to hire. <laughs> like, I think that's the most important thing. You as a startup, I'm sure lots of people have said this on, on this podcast, you live and die by your people. You live and die by the quality of your people. You live and die by like how hard your people push. We're no different. And we have always kind of punched above our weight in terms of the quality of people that we've been able to attract against kind of the stage of the company. And I think it's really because of the mission, right? Like people can come to honor and truly believe I can make money, which is, you know, what lots of people want, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, I can do that while doing good for the world. And that's unique, right? Because it's not often that you get such a direct tie between I could have some pretty great returns, but I could also truly make the world a better place for a certain segment of the population. And that's like by far the number one thing that being a mission-driven company, I think, gets us as really great people. And that does make such a difference. Like, it's everything. Let's turn to challenges. Uh, You've mentioned COVID a few times. How has that impacted the business? Yeah. So what we saw in COVID, like by far the biggest issue is, you know, if you think about it, we have care pros who are our employees going into the homes of the elderly. And the elderly, of course, are the most at risk around the implications of contracting COVID. And of course, our care pros often are actually pretty, you know, they're not all, you know, young where COVID has generally less of an impact. We have care pros who are in their 70s. So, like immediately we just went into this like crazy, you know, mode of trying to understand COVID, trying to source PPE directly from China when hospitals couldn't get PPE. I mean, we were literally like using connections through like clothing e-tailers to get connections to factories in China that were producing PPE. And we were ordering hundreds of thousands of masks. We were building symptoms checkers. We were building for care pros to check their symptoms. We've launched that two weeks after COVID kind of really hit. We were launching, we launched a PPE distribution service to our customers so that they would always have PPE uh, that would auto upgrade them if anybody ever became symptomatic to N95s as opposed to surgical masks. We built stuff like, you know, degree checkers where if someone came down with COVID, we'd instantly know like, you know, first degree, second degree, third degree, who they interact with and who do we have to go check. Uh, So we just built so much uh, we even put, you know, like some states don't have paid sick time. And uh, in, you know, if you're an hourly worker 
and all of a sudden you can't go to work because you're not feeling well and it's too risky to have you go to work because you might have COVID, that has an impact on your take-home pay. And in a whole bunch of states, that just means you're you're kind of out of luck. And so we, you know, proactively chose to put paid sick time into states that don't mandate paid sick time because we wanted our care pros to not have a disincentive to tell us that they weren't feeling well. So we did like just an unbelievable amount of stuff to basically make Honor the absolute safest home care in a pretty wild environment. So it was just like a huge operational lift. And this goes back to the mission thing, right? Like if Honor weren't as mission driven as it is, I think the team would have broken. And like, honestly, like it was just so hard for the team because it was non-stop as COVID was breaking out and for the first X number of months after COVID had broken out. But the mission kept people going. That's great. Any other big challenges you've had along the way? Uh, around COVID? Um, no, in general, in the business. In general. Uh, general, I mean, how, how, you know, which one? Um, <laughs> you know, one of the things that's hard about Honor is there's no obvious comp. So, you know, it's funny, a lot of people always talk about, I really wish I had, like, I hate, sorry, they say, I hate my competition. You know, I always have to explain to investors why I'm going to win versus my competition. And what they don't understand is that the competition helps make the market, right? It like helps investors understand how to look at a given market, um, how to value a market, how other people value a market, how different, you know, people are approaching the market. Honor doesn't have direct competition. And so that's actually a weird challenge that, you know, maybe people listening to the podcast wouldn't expect, but it's an important thing to understand, which is we're really creating, like we're, home care is old as a market, but a technology approach to it is new. And so that creates a set of challenges around really explaining to people like, wait, like how can technology possibly make this any better, right? Like the initial reaction of like the investor set, for example, would be that right? Like how can it possibly, you know, make this a better business? So I'd say that's a big challenge. It's like just that we don't have a direct competitor. Is that actually prefer we did? Yeah, I think that is counterintuitive to people, uh, but I totally understand what you mean. Yep. What advice would you give to an aspiring founder who might be listening? You know, I mean, the, I think the number one most important thing is to work on stuff that you're passionate on. I mean, this is, you know, the 40 some odd year old version of me talking. It's because you know, I, like I said up front, like startups are hard. You're going to work really, really hard. There's going to be like awesome days and really horrible days. And the thing that keeps you going is to work on something that you're passionate about. It's like, that's probably thing number one. And then thing number two is work with people who you love, like work with people who you think are great and work with people who are not like you. It can't be three MBAs, right? It's got to be complementary skill sets. And then as you hire, you really have to think about complementary skill sets, complementary points of view, complementary experiences, because that's what makes you ultimately much stronger. And so if there's two things that matter in a broad sense, it's that. It's like passion and the right you know, people and team. Yeah, those are the important core parts. Uh, is there a book, article, or website that you would recommend to aspiring founders? Oh, you know, I don't, I don't know that there's the one. I'm sure a lot of people have the one. I think one of the most important kind of broader things for founders to try to do 
is to understand better how the world actually works. And I know that sounds broad, but I think it's kind of important. Like you need to be naturally curious about, you know, why is it that that, you know, governmental system runs that way? Or why is it that, you know, we as a society aren't that great at caring for some given population? Because that helps you inform how you attack problems and what problems there are to attack in a way that like can be more powerful and more impactful than if you're kind of like not understanding the, the kind of dynamicism of the world, if that makes sense. Right. And in closing, where can people follow you online? On Twitter, it would be at Seth J S for Jason Sternberg. And that's, that's probably the easiest way to follow me. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Miles. It was a lot of fun. Take care. You too. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's Startups for Good, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.